Hey, Mr. Linden. Hey, Ms. Rallich. How are you? I'm doing great. It's Welcome. been a minute. It's yeah. Been a minute. Well, not technically. I see you all the time, but it's been a minute yeah. since we've done a podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so why, you know, uh, I feel like we should open with like, what's, uh, what's exciting in your life? What's an exciting thing that's happened since uh, we last recorded? Um, well, we're teaching in person. That's very exciting. That's a very um, exciting thing. I mean, I sure. still have to wear a mask and this thing called COVID is still going on, but yeah, I'm quite out. happy to be uh, in a building wearing normal clothes talking yeah. to humans, not a computer. Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. I got to go back home this summer, see my family for the first time in like almost two years. That was pretty cool. That is um, awesome. So uh, big, you know, big moves. We're making big moves over here. How is that? Were you like, can I, oh, can I touch you? <laughs> <laughs> Immediately tired of them. No, no, <laughs> I, it was lovely to see them. Um, I had a really nice time seeing my parents and my brother and uh, it was long overdue is what I would say. Definitely. Well, I'm so glad you got to get back. Um, well, speaking we of getting back, getting hey, back, look at that right. segue. Yeah. <laughs> um, speaking of getting back, uh, we're back in the swing of things doing some some podcasting today. We, we started this podcast about a year ago. Um, you know, as I like to tell people, basically out of sheer boredom Definitely. From, from Zoom teaching. No offense to our students. You all are delightful, but it didn't really have the same pizzazz Agreed. in person. Um, but, you know, we've decided this year that we think it, we, we should continue it because it was fun and hopefully you all learned something. Um, and we've always, we've always focused on, you know, giving the history behind the current news. Um, I think we've taken out the word current. I'll just say news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, the, it's, it's, well, why don't I do the intro now? Sure. Okay. Hello and welcome to Historically Speaking, where we talk about the history behind the news. The news. Maybe not this week's news, but <laughs> the news. Um, and this week, we're going to be doing sort of- You forgot to introduce hits. us. Oh, I totally forgot to introduce us. I'm rusty. It's been a I long know. time. It's been a while. Um, with me, Mr. Linden. And me, Ms. Rallage. And this week, we are going to be talking about three quick hits about the recent controversial decision uh, by the Supreme Court to allow Texas's new law on abortion to stand uh, and to continue be enforced. So obviously a very controversial topic, and we'll do our best to uh, just give you the basics of, of sort of the three things that we think uh, matter the most about this decision, because it's, it's a really layered thing. Yep. Um, and, you know, just to circle back from a historical standpoint, our first episode last year was about the Supreme Court um, when uh, the latest, the newest justice, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, was going mm -hmm. through her confirmation hearings. So it seemed apropos to talk about that, although there are many other things to talk about going on in the news right now. We decided this would be a great starting point. Um, so the, you know, the crux of this is about, of course, access to abortion in the United States. And just a quick hit on history about that. Please. Um, you know, the United States had traditionally outlawed abortion, in fact, contraception for well until the 20th century mm -hmm. um, of any sort. It was illegal to have any contraceptive devices until a very famous case called Griswold versus Connecticut. Yes. In law. Now, obviously, there were many other 
lots of places did not actually enforce that law of keeping yes. contraception out of women's hands, but um, there were actually still many laws on the books, including one in Connecticut that said a female could not use contraceptive um, <clears throat> materials or, you know, would be thrown in jail. That was the first kind of, I would say like stick in the, you know, in the, in the wheel that slowed down this anti-abortion rule. And then of course, in 1973, there was a very famous case called Roe versus Wade that came before the Supreme Court um, that essentially used the penumbra clause of the 14th Amendment, in other words, like the umbrella clause of the 14th Amendment that said that um, under the right to privacy, a woman has access to, uh, or has, I'm sorry, has the right to an abortion. In other words, a woman's body is her own. It is her own private sphere. Therefore, there is no constitutional basis for uh, for prohibiting a female from having an abortion. So since 1973, for all intents and purposes, the United States has had legalized abortion. Um, now that has changed slightly over the years in terms mm -hmm. of another famous case called um, Casey, Casey versus, yeah, yeah. Um, Casey versus Pennsylvania in which they limited the time frame. So in other words, you could not have an abortion throughout the entire period of time, but they limited it based on viability of the fetus. Okay. Yep. Since 1973, the United States has had a pretty healthy and at times very aggressive argument about this. Um, yes. and of course in the past probably decade, it's gotten much more aggressive in terms of trying to break down the constitutional rights given from Roe. Um, and Texas is the latest state that has gone against the Roe v. Wade. Right. And this is sort of the most significant uh, uh, encroachment on on the, the territory of of Roe and Casey in a while. Um, uh, similar laws in the past have not been allowed to stand. Um, it prohibits uh, abortion after just a, a few weeks into the pregnancy at a point where a lot of women wouldn't even know that they were pregnant yet. Um, I also just want to put a quick note in here. If you guys are hearing any guitar sounds in the background, that's just some of our wonderful students jamming uh, the next room over, um, providing a uh, organic soundtrack for our uh, for our episode today. Yeah. So so this law right uh, follows in sort of the history of of Roe and Casey, and this is. Uh, I, I I think it's fair to say that this is a change of direction. Um, historically for for the United States on abortion, though maybe it's been coming for a while based on the people who are on the court. Um, this is a significant move away from from Casey and Roe. Would you agree with that? Mm, yeah, absolutely. And to, um, to correct myself, it's not actually Casey versus Pennsylvania. I'm sorry. It's Casey versus Planned Parenthood of Southeastern of Pennsylvania. Of, yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, basically, since that that uh, ruling, which was in the early 90s, 1992, I believe, um, there have been several states, something like 20 plus states that have um, initiated laws that would limit access to abortion. So limit, for example, like limit the number of providers that can be within a state um, by saying you have to have hospital admitting privileges. Um, those, that, those laws have been upheld. And so there are many states across the nation in which there are, there is limited access. And there have been a series of so-called 
heartbeat bills that have yes. been passed by state legislatures. Those are bills much like the Texas bill that says that once a heartbeat is detected, which is roughly around eight weeks, eight, six to eight weeks, then um, uh, an abortion is no longer legal. None of those laws, again, none of those laws until this Texas law has been upheld by the Supreme Court because it has been deemed unconstitutional. Um, and so one of the, the more interesting things and why this is probably a topic worth truly discussing, despite the fact that it is obviously related to a, a controversial and an interesting topic like abortion, but just in general, from a judicial standpoint, is this law is extraordinarily unique in the way that it was crafted yes. um, with a very specific uh, means of enforcement and a very, in very specific, vague, but also specific language um, about who is in, in, who's responsible for this law. And that is one reason why it's, it's passed so far past Supreme Court muster. So Mr. Linden, do you want to explain a little bit about the, the legalese and the enforcement behind this law? Right. So this, the way that this law is enforced is extremely unorthodox um, uh, in the, in the U S context, because normally when a crime is committed, the state prosecutes the person who has committed the crime. That is not how this law works. Uh, instead, it is actually residents of the state who are empowered to uh, prosecute, to sue um, the folks who provide care for the person seeking seeking the abortion. So um, it is not actually, it does not actually allow for the person who is, is seeking an abortion to be uh, sued, but anyone who supports them, anyone who even transports them, uh, basically anyone in any sort of supportive role can be prosecuted. Uh, and, and even more than that, if the case is successful against that person, the state provides a $10,000 reward to the person who did the suing and covers the legal fees for the person who does the suing. So, you know, theoretically, people could be making money off of this uh, as a uh, as a, I guess, legal strategy as a as a thing to do. As people have been cynically calling it, it's like a bounty, a bounty hunters, you know, they can, can go out and make money off of this. Um, and I think the, the reason why they, they did this is because from a legal standpoint, it makes it extraordinarily difficult. In other words, it's a, it's a workaround from Roe. Like the, okay. the federal government, I'm sorry, the federal judiciary and, and the Supreme Court does not have jurisdiction over that. Yes. A, a, a civil, uh, a civilian can sue on whatever other grounds that they want. That is not a Supreme Court issue, right? They, they deal with what states do. Um, and this allows, essentially opens that door up. Basically, Texas saying, we're putting a law in the books that allows people to sue. They don't have to sue, but they can. And the fact, and you can make money off of it, obviously. And you don't even have to be a resident of, uh, or, uh, of Texas. You could be a resident of any state in the country, right? Mm -hmm. um, and still sue people. So what it has done is effectively shut down any provider who would yeah. be willing to, or who had been um, providing abortion services prior to this. They've said, you know, well, there's just no way that we can do this because the, the fear of suit of civil suit is great enough and significant, significant enough from a financial perspective that um, 
as of, I believe last Monday, was it last week, a week or two ago? Last week, yeah. Um, there have been more or less no abortions or saying something like it closes down roughly 90% of all abortion services in the state. And it, Texas. this, this enforcement method opens up a real can of worms, right? Uh, because if you can enforce this law this way, you know, what else can be, can be enforced this way and be exempt from federal, federal statutes. So, um, I think that one of the things that is more shocking about this is that the Supreme Court, and this is a little bit of a technical thing, but the Supreme Court uh, handed down their decision in the way that they did. Um, Because typically with major cases in the Supreme Court, um, they wait to make their decision on, on whether, uh, on whether a law will stand until after it's fully argued in front of the court. Um, and, uh, they will typically grant a, a, a stay on the law. They will suspend the law until the argument is, is done and they hand down a decision. Um, but that is not what happened here. Uh, Ms. Rylich, do you want to, do you want to describe what happened here instead? Yeah, so this is what people call um, has been coined the shadow docket docket of the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court will get the will get a series of cases that need to be decided on pretty quickly. You know, a traditional Supreme Court case you may get it may go on for two years. Um, yep. You have to get it has to be granted cert, which means it has to be granted essentially it has to be voted on by the, the justices to actually be heard in front of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's all these briefs that are filed in support of certain cases. And then of course the oral arguments are heard. Um, and then, and during the first session, and then the justices will sit on it for multiple months, thinking mm-hmm. about it, talking to people, talking to their clerks, etc., before decisions are ultimately given. So frequently, uh, oral arguments may be in October and decisions come out in say June. Right. Yeah. Um, and when a decision comes out, there's always a long explanation, constitutional explanation of the um, of the decision, and then also the dissent. In other words, it's like their kind of podium or their you know speaker box of where they get to say yeah. why we did this. Now, when when a Supreme Court case is put on what is called again the shadow docket. They're usually kind of emergency things like there was a recent case about moratoriums, uh, a moratorium for evictions during COVID. There's mm-hmm. been cases about the border wall. There's been a series on DACA, a series of different cases that are a lot of times uh, kind of politically charged things that need to be decided quickly a lot of the time. Yeah, they can. Be, they can be. But actually, traditionally, they've been like executions, for example, yes. you know, like whether or not to stay an execution. So they need to go pretty rapidly. The point is, is that this this case came on the shadow docket because, of course, this pa- this law had been passed. There is really no again, according to well, the Supreme Court doesn't really have jurisprudence over this because, again, it is a civil lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, nonetheless, though it was brought, of course, all the way to the Supreme Court, and five justices out of out of nine deemed that they they don't have jurisprudence over this. And that essentially they will have to wait until there is actually a, a case where someone has been specifically accused. Um, in other words, there's a, like a defendant um, that where they would look at this. And therefore, these five justices say, said, you know, we're staying out of this and the case stand or the law stands. OK, yeah. 
four justices out of the nine said, well, that's incorrect um, because this is a constitutional right. And if it wasn't a topic as controversial as abortion, let's say, but something else like freedom of speech, this would never fly, right? This would never yeah. be something that we would suddenly say, you know, for a period of time, for six, seven, maybe two years and one state in, in the nation, there is no such thing as freedom of speech, right? That is right. not something that most justices would be willing to stand by or freedom of religion or anything. But based on the idea of this topic being, again, as, as uh, you know, as con- uh, contentious as it is, Mm-hmm. They are they have allowed this law to stay. And of course, the Justice Department from the Biden administration has said essentially something similar. This is unconstitutional to take away this right within uh, one of the most populous states in the nation or any state in the nation. Um, and therefore, they are suing the state um, to get rid of the law. Right. But the big thing about the shadow docket and sorry, just to finish that, please, is that it happens it's shadowy. It's shady. Yes. You know, it happens in the, in the dark of night, like this, this, this decision, which wasn't even a decision it's unsigned. So we don't actually know who was who the dissents were signed, but the, but the, but the decision was not signed. It happened at midnight on a random, you know, Friday night. And there was no reasoning behind what they did. There was no oral arguments. There's no public incorporation. And so as many people have said, both, you know, critiqued, like this is, this is the antithesis of what we think about when we think about true judicial review and a democratic system, because this is essentially nine justices making a decision very discreetly for an enormous population. Absolutely. Um, I think the last thing to hit here, right, is just that in this upcoming docket for the Supreme Court, there is a pretty direct challenge to Roe v. Wade coming. Um, And this, a lot of folks smarter than I have (laughs) uh, analyzed this to say, you know, this could be a a signal that a a real change is coming um, down the road in this this policy. So one of the interesting things is after the appointment of of Amy Coney Barrett, in this this past administration, uh, John Roberts, who has been the swing vote for a number of years on the Supreme Court, is not really the swing vote anymore. Um, so even if he sides with the the liberals, which he has done on a number of time, number of cases that involve directly overturning an old precedent, he doesn't tend to support that kind of a decision. Um, you would still be looking at one of the five uh, justices, um, you know, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Thomas, Alito, or uh, who am I missing? Barrett. Um, one of them would have to uh, deviate significantly from what they have traditionally said um, to get a result other than a, a real direct challenge to Roe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the case that's on the docket is a Mississippi case that is one of these so-called heartbeat bills, um, yes. which is a, it's a more traditional way of essentially saying, you know, viability, a fetus's viability begins at eight weeks and therefore anything, actually, I think it's 15 weeks for the Mississippi case, yeah. um, but therefore any abortions after that, um, that, that goes from the, again, the woman's 
quote unquote private sphere to now this, this, this fetus has its own life. And actually now it has its own rights. Therefore you cannot abort. It's not legal in the United States to abort. Um, and you know, I mean, I think many people have argued and we even talked about this last year, mm-hmm. uh, the basis of the legality of abortion on the 14th amendment has always been tenuous yeah. and there are no federal laws that actually support abortion rights. It's actually just always been the Supreme court case, the 73 Supreme, Supreme court case. Mm-hmm. And, um, it has been tested time and time again, but it seems like this, this is the big moment where it will truly, you know, to rely on the Supreme court to say, okay, we're either going to stick with this judicial interpretation from the 14th amendment, or we are going to reinterpret, which does happen. It doesn't happen that frequently that they overturn precedents, but it does happen um, from time to time, sometimes obviously for the best, like during the civil war and with slavery and things like that. But um, yeah, it'll be an interesting case to watch over the next few months. Yeah. A reckoning for, for Roe v. Wade and for the country. Mm-hmm. Um, is what what we're headed for. So, Ms. Rylich, thank you so much for chatting with me today about uh, about this stuff and speaking so eloquently about it. Um, and uh, we'll uh, we'll be back with another episode soon, right? Absolutely. It's great to see you and and great to talk. If you have any topics that you want us to discuss that are in the news, let us know. Send us an email. Yeah, and please. We'll incorporate. Very exciting. All right. Yeah. Um, Bye, Mr. London. Goodbye, Ms. Rylich.